on the job with Francis Leach and Sally Rugg. Welcome to On The Job, the podcast all about making your working life better. Francis Leach here. I'm on today, another COVID lockdown edition of the pod. Uh, Sally will be back next week. Hopefully we can get it together to maybe even be in the same room again. What a year it's turning out to be as this government rolls from one disaster to the next and our vaccine rollout rolls off a cliff. Uh, really, we are all thinking of everybody who is in lockdown or is affected by uh, the the COVID situation in Australia and indeed around the world right now, but particularly for those workers who have lost work and uh, are struggling to make ends meet, who are not being uh, given the adequate uh, support that they need from a federal government to get them through their these tough times. Uh, Australian unions and workers around the country stand with you. We understand the pain you're going through and we'll keep advocating on your behalf to try to change that day in, day out. One of the things that we do do is also advocate for a better pay for everybody because wage stagnation has been an issue in this country for over a decade. Whilst profits have gone through the roof for big companies around the country and around the world, wages in Australia have basically flatlined and a pay rise seems to be a thing of the past. Well, that's something that ACTU Secretary Sally McManus addressed as part of the Australia Institute's webinar series, which happens every week. You can go to uh, Australia Institute online, just check through your your, your favourite portal, your favourite search engine to find the Australia Institute. And she addressed this issue in a speech that she gave and in a conversation with Dr. Jim Stanford. Now, Dr. Jim Stanford is a good friend of Australian unions. He's the director for the Centre for Future Work at the Australia Institute. And he spoke with Sally McManus as part of her webinar discussion. So let's check it out. Sally McManus talking about Australia's broken bargain and the need for a pay rise. On the job with Francis Leach and Sally Rugg. There's a deep conundrum at the heart of the government's story about their economic management, and that's what I want to talk about. As my colleague ACTU President Michelle O'Neill said in a speech before the budget at the National Press Club, The Liberal Party in this country have had a political stranglehold on the definition of good economic management. Trickle-down economics, the weaponisation of government debt, the demonisation of the safety net. And this is how they've controlled the economic levers of government. Well, this might be the year where their cover is blown. The COVID pandemic still raging around parts of the world and in my hometown of Sydney It's highlighted perhaps more than any other previous moment in history the fundamental distinction between the well-being of all of society and the wealth and affluence of the rich. Around the world, millions have died. Tens of millions faced frightening disease and economies were humbled. Yet stock markets hit record highs, including here in Australia. The wealth of Australia's billionaires doubled during the pandemic. Profits rose 10% despite the recession and mass unemployment. It's very clear that what the government views as a strong economy is namely more profits, higher stock markets and more wealth for the rich, and it's not necessarily good for ordinary people. We'll never see stronger proof that wealth does not trickle down. In Australia for the last generation, wealth has actually trickled up 
And during the pandemic, the trickle has become a torrent. And here's the conundrum for them. They were boasting about the strength of the economy post-COVID prior to the Sydney lockdown. The government has trumpeted out the economy as a tribute to their management with consumer demand roaring back, employment recovering, the stock market rebounding, profit going up. But whenever they're asked to stand up for working people and wage earners, their story turns dark. Their strong economy becomes a house of cards that can be blown down by the smallest puff of wind. Increase the minimum wage? Well, the time's just not right. It'll hurt business. Improve workers' rights? Well, that could really bring us all unstuck. Do we need to do something about insecure work? Well, that would be just impossible. A break on productivity and business needs flexibility. Use the government to invest in proper services and Australian jobs? No, no, let's just leave that to the private sector. It appears the economy can be both strong and weak at the same time. And whether the economy is strong or the economy is weak, the government believes workers should get less. At least there's one point where the government is consistent. However, this year, for the first time I can remember, while the federal government were beating their chests about the recovery, wages came into the spotlight. Now, Australia, as many of you know, was once admired around the world, and rightly so, for our high levels of inclusive prosperity and equality. You know, the fair go, sunshine harvester decision of 1907, supported by decades of struggles by the Australian union movement, is how we fought for and we tried to protect a system for people that was meant to be governed by rational and moral principles rather than economic brute force. We pioneered the idea of the living wage. We led the way on the eight-hour day. We built systems of awards that were unique in the world. They ensured a level playing field and fair compensation for workers across different occupations and industries. That system is still globally unique, despite it being watered down to a safety net rather than a way to lead progress for all workers. The post-war era, Australia had a prosperous and productive economy, which was good for workers. Social and economic equality, while certainly not perfect, rivaled the advanced social democracies of the Nordic countries. It was a uniquely Australian social contract, a uniquely Australian bargain, the fair go. Well, this all began to unravel with the advent and ascent of the neoliberal economic trickle-down economic policies. Now, these policies came to Australia in a unique way, reflecting the particular historical and political circumstances of our country, but they came all the same. And Australia today has lost our reputation as a land of the fair go. As others have noted, when the Governor of Reserve Bank says there's a problem with wages, the issue is clearly at crisis point. For over the past decades, wages did allow gradual improvements in the real state of living for most uh, workers, their real standards of living. Of course, there were too many people who still fell through the cracks of our industrial relations system, but there was an established pattern over the years of wages keeping up. And the data tells us something changed around the end of 2013. I wonder what that could have been. I seem to recall a certain election and a certain Prime Minister coming into office at that time. 
Of course, it wasn't just that election. There are other factors that mattered as well. And the whole course of wages was shifted onto a different track and has been stuck there ever since. Since late 2013, according to the ABS Wages Price Index, nominal wages across the whole economy have grown at an average of 2%. Wage growth in the private sector has been even weaker. The Wage Price Index doesn't tell the whole story because it eliminates the impact of changes in job composition over overcompensation. A lower um, wage part-time and casual jobs are expanding, as they have been, then the growth of the overall wages is even weaker. 2% is barely half the pace of the traditional wage growth in Australia. And contrary to the comforting rose-coloured forecasts of government and business economists, this wasn't a short-term blip. It's now a well-established trend. Every year in the official budget forecasts, this government has said, don't worry, wages are going to strengthen, supply and demand conditions are tightening, the market will fix it. In every single year, the government's been wrong. Year after year, the government predicted a rebound in wages growth. And every year, that rebound failed to materialise. Most of all, they can't say how they will get um, wages higher. Eight straight years of very low wage growth. And this has been the worst wage record in Australia's post-war history, eight straight years. And the pandemic really has made things worse. I don't need to tell you all that the pandemic has made it worse. It's important to note that workers entered the crisis in a very weak position. The economy was slowing. In 2019-2020, bushfires caused huge damage and uncertainty, and we were already enduring seven years of record low wage growth. The pandemic and resulting recession have made things worse. Nominal wage growth effectively stopped altogether in the worst months of 2020. On a year-on-year basis, it fell below 1.4%, the worst since the Depression. There was a tiny improvement in the March quarter of this year to 1.5%, but nothing to restore confidence. And there's no sign things will get better without deliberate, concerted action to make it so. There's no reason for employers to change their behaviour. Employers naturally take advantage of their power. And when the problem has been so obvious for seven years before the pandemic, we can't just blame COVID for the crisis in wages. We can't let the government and employers use COVID as a scapegoat when their own failures were obvious for so many years. Sally, uh, let me uh, interject here just for a moment. You know, you've highlighted the uh, this really long-lasting downshift in, in wage growth to 2% a year for eight years straight. Let's bring consumer prices into it. The reason I ask is uh, some people say, well, inflation has also been very low, so it's not such a problem that wages are low. That doesn't make sense to me, but tell me what you think and, and tell me about what's happened to real wages, real purchasing power in this time. Well, 2% increase in nominal wages for eight years running is bad enough, but remember, consumer prices are rising over that period too. The, re- the change in real wages after accounting for CPI was actually close to zero. And that's, you know, workers can't buy any more goods and services with their wages. Moreover, the total CPI measure of inflation doesn't tell the whole story. The cost of necessities that workers have to buy, so food, energy, housing, have gone up faster than the cost of imported luxury products and non-essentials. 
You know, so according to the ABS, while prices have increased for discretionary spending by 18.1% over the last 15 years, prices have increased for non-discretionary spending by more than twice as much. So that's 43.8%. Therefore, the performance of workers' real purchasing power has been even worse than the official numbers indicate. And as you note, Jim, some commentators have argued that since nominal wages grew slightly faster than CPI during the pandemic, so workers should stop complaining. But inflation has been rebounding since May um, last year. And if inflation continues to increase, the real wages will take a further hit. And you look at the government's own budget forecasts, they expect wages to, to, to grow below CPI for 2021 and 21-22 and merely just match CPI for the year after. So in other words, even the government expects real standards of living of Australian workers to fall. You know, the question is, what is the government going to do about that? Wages are the most important price in the economy. They're not just a price, they're also the basis of spending. When wages are growing slowly, spending can't grow either, and it's also another sign of the failed austerity policies. We've had wages basically utterly stuck in the mud, and we've had inflation that's fallen below the RBA's own official target for seven years in a row. It's a sign of profound economic weakness. And if you think about other countries, our current wages crisis can't be judged just on our own history. In comparison to the rest of the world, Australia has one of the worst wages trends of any industrial country. According to OECD data, average nominal wage growth in the five years before the pandemic was ninth worst amongst 35 industrial countries. In real wage terms, we were the third worst. And measuring relative to inflation, remember real wages basically went nowhere for those five years before the pandemic. So it can't be argued that the wages crisis is a universal, global phenomena. Yes, workers around the world face huge challenges trying to protect their standards of living and, and, and win real wages. But here in Australia, we were once a land of the fair go, workers have fared especially badly. That means we have to look at our own policy failures, the failures of our own institutions. We can't blame market forces. The record weakness of wages for the last eight years in a row has exacerbated another problem, which was also around long before the pandemic. There's been a huge redistribution in Australia's economic pie away from workers and in favour of corporations. And that trend started long ago, but reached unprecedented levels, levels of extreme during the pandemic. And this is a direct and predictable result of deliberate policies put in place to suppress wages. Workers are producing more output every year thanks to their new skills, new technology and rising productivity. In fact, Australian workers produce more value-add with each hour of their labour than any time in history, but their compensation has not remotely kept up with their productivity. This can be seen in the major reduction in workers' share of total output, their slice of the national economic pie. Labor compensation, including superannuation contributions, hit a record low 47% of Australia's GDP in 2019. That's the lowest annual average since the ABS started reporting this data back in 1959. And from a peak labor share of 
1975, over one-tenth of the economic pie has been taken away from workers. That loss of 10.4% of GDP is worth $208 billion in today's terms. And that works out to a stunning average of $20,000 in lost income for each and every waged worker in Australia. During this same period, the share of GDP going to corporate profits has grown steadily. It went from under 16% of GDP in 1975 to over 26% of GDP, highest ever in 2019. That's an increase of 10.2 percentage points and it's worth $200 billion. So workers have lost a 10% share in the GDP pie and corporations have gained a 10% share in the GDP pie. Decades of deliberate efforts to suppress wages, disempower workers, enrich and empower businesses have paid off. The distribution of national income has shifted dramatically and is dangerously in favour of business. And this was the whole point of neoliberal trickle-down economics. It's worked for business, it just hasn't worked for anyone else. My jaw has dropped at that figure, $20,000 of foregone wages for each and every waged worker in Australia because of that shift in distribution over that whole period, that whole that last you know, 40 and some year period of neoliberalism. Um, I, I, I think that's the kind of thing that should get people rioting in the streets, to tell you the truth. Well, maybe not rioting, but at least marching and protesting and striking. Um, I think people are angry about this. They may not know that number yet, but I do think people are angry that the, the promise of improved standard of living has, has not occurred, has not been met. How do we transform that anger into, into sort of a constructive movement, an effective movement that gets wages growing again? Well, first of all, what is the problem we're facing? Because the other side, you know, the people who are benefiting are kicking up a lot of dust and saying it's a whole lot of things it's not. So every month there's a new theory trying to explain low wages. One way they say it's because unemployment is too high and when unemployment comes down, then wages will go up. Then they say it's because productivity isn't growing fast enough. Then the next week it's, oh, yeah, there's a problem with underemployment. It's too high. I've got to wait for that to be fixed somehow. And last week they started saying, it's well, it's because immigration has been too high. So talk about ignoring the very big policy elephant in the room. And it's time our country faces up to the truth so we can see what that problem actually is. The wage crisis for workers, the destruction of the fair go, the creation of a working underclass, betrayal of the great Australian bargain is a deliberate outcome of conscious policy. It was caused by policies designed to weaken the bargaining power of workers. When workers try and bargain in Australia, it's like being tied to a chair and asked to stand up when every arm, every leg is tied down. Over the years, as employers have won precedence to the detriment of working people, the laws have become even more restrictive and the bonds have tightened. And the easier it has been for employers to outsource and casualise jobs, the more those bonds have tightened. Our bargaining rules operate to severely limit and restrict working people at every step. Now, last year, when the government oversaw talks between unions and employer groups, we again witnessed employers trying to loosen the restrictions on them 
and push back on the very few protections workers still have. Workers have less and less access to collective bargaining because of all these one-sided, over-regulated regulation has crushed the power that workers have to convince their employers to lift wages. In the past, Australian workers could rely on bargaining and the award system, which allowed strongly unionised workers to drive wages growth. This helped those workers, but it also dragged up those without bargaining power as well. It set a floor, it lifted all workers up. But the current laws do not support workers bargaining for wage rises. Collective bargaining is harder than it's ever been for working people, and the award system operates as a mere safety net, basically frozen in place and unable to respond when there are changes to wage levels in an industry. The inability for awards to move upwards, even when there's clear cases of gendered undervaluation in work like childcare and aged care, it's actually creating incentives for employers to outsource work, to casualise work. So as unionised workers want better pay increases over time, they're played off against workers who only got the award wage. Workers, uh, employers who only pay the award undercut those employers with bargains. This is how labour hire companies have prospered. They've marketed their services as a method of cutting wages, as good, secure, properly paid jobs are replaced with insecure, low-paid jobs. And employers have been given more rights and more parachutes to help them out paying decent wages and conditions. As a result of the Horizon decision of the full bench of the Fair Work Commission in 2015, employers are now able to argue their enterprise agreements should be cancelled altogether if it's been too hard to bargain. And this means workers' wages and entitlements can be radically slashed, stripping them of 20 years' worth of bargain gains overnight. You can just imagine that. This is a threat employers have been using at bargaining tables ever since 2015. Come to an agreement or suffer a unilateral pay cut and lose important job security safeguards built up over the years like redundancy payments. The effect of all of these threats further tighten those bonds I talked about. So it's just no wonder we have a wages crisis. Wages won't rise if workers don't have bargaining power. Wages won't rise if workers don't have rights. Our wages problem is a bargaining power problem. Employers have too much and employees not enough. And with all the power in the hands of employers, wages no longer move in a way that fairly shares the gains of productivity, of profits, of our nation's wealth. That is why there's been a 10% shift from working people to corporations. We have low wages growth because we have policies that deliberately suppress it. This is a problem that won't be fixed until those policies change. Australia's dedicated and creative trade unionists struggle every single day under this system. But unfair laws make our jobs harder than it is for our union colleagues in the rest of the OECD, harder than it even is for union members and activists in the United States. Governments impose wage caps, just like employers oppose, uh, impose low-wage policies. Workers struggle to break them because, unlike employers, they're tied to the chair. Our bargaining system needs to be updated and needs to be rebalanced to give all workers the ability to access the system to deliver fair pay increases. 
This includes options to bargain across sectors and industries as is now occurring in New Zealand. Our award system needs to be adjusted so it operates as a proper industry floor that can be adjusted as wages in industries change. Urgent action is also needed to make jobs more secure by making unlawful the fiction of permanent casual, make unlawful labour hire, rorting the system to replace permanent fairly paid jobs, make unlawful the so-called gig economy jobs that have no rights, make unlawful unending fixed-term contracts. Now, you would think the Morrison government might have an empathy moment in 2020 as hundreds of thousands of casual workers lost their jobs overnight and had no sick leave in the middle of the pandemic, just like the casual workers in Sydney at the moment. But actually, it seems their empathy levels are stuck on couldn't care less because instead, a few months ago, they passed laws to entrench casual work and entrench labour hire. They gave the labour hire corporations exactly what they wanted, and that says it all. And insecure jobs have been coming back with vengeance after COVID lockdowns. 60% of new wage jobs created since last May are casual jobs. 57% of new jobs since May are part-time. In the self-employment sphere, 80% of new self-employed positions since May are precarious, with proprietors having no incorporated status, no paid employees or both. Instead of seizing the moment and ensuring workers have better job security, they did exactly the opposite. And now, as I said, the casual workers in Sydney are the one feeling the, ones feeling the pain the most. In two weeks' time, Jim, as you mentioned before, our movement, the Australian Union Movement, comes together for our biennial conference where delegates from every um, union debate our policy and our direction. And it's clear we'll be meeting in the shadow of our country's latest COVID lockdown with our largest city facing its greatest challenges since the pandemic began. And I guess this makes our work even more urgent and it gives us greater focus. Workers have been on the forefront of the battle against COVID and we intend to be at the heart of debates about how to recover and rebuild. We will not accept a recovery that entrenches unfairness and disadvantage. We will keep fighting for hardest hit, the hardest hit in the latest lockdown. We will continue to raise our voices in support of a competent vaccine rollout. And we'll hold this government to account on the issue of workers' wages. We'll keep fighting for better laws. That's our commitment. ACTU Secretary Sally McManus there in conversation with the Director for the Centre for Future Work at the Australia Institute, Dr Jim Stanford, talking about the need for a pay rise, for a new bargain, to fix the broken bargain when it comes to wages in Australia. Thanks to the Australian Institute for the audio of that conversation. And you can check out their webinar series online. That's it for this week's edition of On The Job. Thanks for being with us. Don't forget to rate us on whatever platform that you currently listen to us on. Tell your friends about the podcast and uh, share the information and the inspiration. And we will catch you next week on The Job. Bye-bye.